Welcome to a podcast with Aaron Schultz. Men's mental health matters. Live life with an outback mind. Thanks so much for joining in once again, episode 198 today. I have Dr. Peter Larkins with me now. Uh, most of you that follow AFL would have seen Peter on TV over the last uh, maybe 20 odd years on, on Channel 9, also Channel 7, also uh, on Triple M on the radio uh, and 3AW. Peter is a well regarded, um, I suppose, surgeon uh, and also a GP doctor uh, and has got a great insight into athlete development, athlete uh, injury and knowledge and so forth. Being a Former athlete himself, he represented Australia in the steeplechase in the Olympics and also the Commonwealth Games, uh, won multiple national titles and um, uh, is very, very uh, in tune with the human body and uh, the potential of the human body. So the foundation of today's conversation is about uh, being able to live to our potential as men and as humans, uh, what can be possible if we actually like live um I suppose, more functionally uh, and to be able to, you know, age uh, well, uh, be able to use the body well and, uh, and fuel ourselves well, um, you know, throughout our lifetime as we get older. And, uh, you know, Peter believes that we can all live to 100 and beyond, but not just live, like thrive to 100 and beyond if we uh, follow uh, a right pathway and start to, you know, do things that look after our, our physical and mental health, uh, you know, primarily. So, we're going to be pretty insightful chat around that today and what Peter believes uh, is possible. So I'm sure you're going to really enjoy this chat and I really encourage you to share it with others. Uh, now, if you're looking to make some changes in your life, you've got some blockages uh, and you need some help, I recommend uh, Mick Stooth, who's got an organisation called The Real Shift. They have a nine-week uh, nine deep dive program coming up in October where they take people through a process to be able to change habits, create good ones, uh, and, and basically sustain good physical and mental health moving forward. So we all get stuck in life and we all uh, have some problems uh, that get in our road. Uh, so this is a, a great program which can help you move forward. So I really encourage you to check them out. Uh, go to therealshift.com, uh, therealshift.com forward slash deep dive. You'll see the program. Uh, if you mention the Outback Mind podcast, you'll get a 10% discount. It's a really good deal. So uh, I encourage you to invest in yourself and, uh, and make the changes now uh, because we seem to procrastinate as guys and uh, get in our road too much. So, you know, by investing in yourself and making changes, you'll, uh, you'll, uh, you won't regret it, that's for sure. Absolutely. So please check them out. Uh, also, if you'd like the podcast, if you'd be uh, kind enough to make a donation to the Outback Mind Foundation. I'd be really appreciative. We pretty much rely on donations. So I'd uh, love uh, some support if you could help out. Uh, best to jump on the Outback Mind Foundation website, go to support us, and uh, you can chip away there. Alrighty, thanks for listening in. Really appreciate your feedback. G'day, Pete. Aaron, nice to talk with you. Great. You too, mate. And uh, they tell me the weather's pretty good down there in Albert Park today. Well, the spring has really sprung. I reckon it turned in the end of part of uh, August and uh, no, the sun is shining and uh, 
I had a, a bit of a Father's Day trying to look at some of the garden, uh, getting it look better. It doesn't look that great, but I think it's, uh, it's starting to show some colour. It's great. The, the country comes out of me when I start to see the garden blossom, uh, oh, mate. Oh, my word. It's, uh, it's giving us a gift every day at the moment, that's for sure. So you, uh, you'd be pretty happy because Geelong won on the weekend as well? Yeah, look, I'm uh, Geelong born and bred, grew up on the peninsula on a little property and, um, you know, at uh, six years of age I was down in the cat's change room with my uncle who was one of the trainers learning how to strap ankles and things at age six. So it's been in the blood for a long, long time. My dad was involved with Frank Costa as a great friend of his and Frank was, of course, one of the best presidents. And so the cats had a amazing uh, one-goal one uh, win against the, the nemesis, the Pies, and 91,000. i got to say, it was an amazing... That, the whole footy on the weekend was great, but having uh, made, made the Father's Day wing a bit more enjoyable when the Cats uh, didn't lose the first final. They've done that a few times over the years, Aaron, which is frustrating as a Cats supporter when they're playing well. But uh, there's to lose this year, I've said to a few of my Geelong friends, so... It was a nice, a nice, nice game to go to Saturday night. It'll be exciting. You, you've been around footy pretty much your whole life, then. I have. I mean, I went to a, a school, um, St Joey CBC in Geelong. It was a very strong, sporty school. In fact, it boasts more AFL players than any other school in Australia mm. um, had come through and played AFL. So it was a very strong footy um, and sport culture, I should say. Athletics, cricket. Lots of things at my school, but I guess growing up in Geelong, you don't have to support Geelong, Aaron, but, you know, with my, my parents and family and my uncle being a trainer there, um, footy, as I said, age six, I got an interest in it and played footy at school from the time that I was sort of um, playing under 10s, under 12s, under 15s, it was all caught in those days and managed to get to play through the first, have a couple of premierships and got invited to train down at Geelong as a 16-year-old by the, the famous Bobby Davis when he was involved at Geelong. So mm. I even got to get into the, uh, you know, the, the change rooms and, and see it from a, um, from a you know, participant point of view. But then uh, ultimately footy stayed in my life simply because of what I've done with my uh, medical career, Aaron. Mm. You sort of diverted off and got into athletics, so um, pretty much around the same time. Yeah, look, look, at 16, I was uh, playing in the first 18 at school, as that was called at the time, and, and I was also running in athletics and had been in little athletics since the age of six down at Geelong, because Geelong Landy Field was the number one little athletics centre that was the first one ever to start up in Australia, and so athletics was in my blood, footy was in my blood, but I had to make a decision. I was either going to stay lightweight and skinny and um, and quick or to put on some muscle, because I was told by Geelong I had to put on some muscle and get, get heavier, Aaron, so... Yeah. I was on this pathway at you know 16 going into age 17 i had to decide between athletics and footy and um i went down the athletics path and i never regretted it i must say mm, you um obviously progressed and then got the opportunity to represent australia at the olympics yeah well look it wasn't on my mind when i made that decision but i, I must admit you look back at early decisions in life and say how did i have the intuition to do that and i often talk to people about you know kids say follow your intuition because you're often right but when I was trying to make that decision, the best thing you could do was represent Victoria. Remember Teddy Whitten, the big white V? It was the greatest thing you could do in footy, and it was yeah. called VFL, not AFL in those days, where yeah. I was already in the Victorian team representing Victorian athletics, and so I thought the concept of a target for myself, Aaron, to say, what can you achieve in sport? Well, representing Victoria, I'd already sort of done that, and, um, and for footy, you couldn't go any further. And I thought, well, you know, with athletics, I was quite enjoying it. And, you know, so, um, yeah, I went... I went on to represent Australia for nine consecutive years on the international circuit. But when I made that decision, I was just very happy to be running for Victoria. I, did, I didn't know it was going to lead to, but I got a terrific coach who, who actually put a mind in my mind that, you know, you shouldn't set yourself for 
local level, state levels, national level at Australia. Look at the international scene. I thought he was delusional. I didn't realise I was capable of doing it. But I must say he was a very good mentor for me. Alan Barlow at, at Box Hill Athletic Club was his name, Aaron. And he put in my mind when I was age 19 or 20 that I could represent Australia. And I just thought he was just trying to make me train harder. But uh, he was right. By age 20, I was uh, on my first selection for an Australian squad. It was ridiculous. Amazing, mate. And... Um like you obviously uh, got to go overseas. Where was the Olympics that you uh, that you um, got a good Well, my first Olympic selection was Montreal, 1976. So in 1975, I was uh, um, starting to sort of run some times that were reasonable, and um, the the, the uh, Olympic selection trials were at the beginning of March in in 1976, and so that was Montreal. And then um, that was the in 1975, I was rep- I represented Australia in an Australia versus New Zealand. Um, combination event mm. and um, so that was my first international taste but that was just against New Zealand and so Montreal and then 1980 I was selected for the Moscow Olympic team but didn't get to compete through a combination of politics and the boycotts and things which was a very strong political thing that happened in the 1980 Olympics Aaron. Mm, for sure how was that for you at the time were you frustrated that you couldn't uh... oh devastating no yeah. look I'd um Look, needless to say, I was a bit frustrated because I spent four years, you know, targeting. I'd taken a year off medical school to train for it. Um, you know, I was a bit disappointed that I didn't do better at the first Olympics, but there's, you know, these days it's a totally different way that athletes prepare. They have camps and they go off and they prepare. We just flew out of Australia. It was eight degrees at Tullamarine Airport. We had a charter flight. I remember I was sitting next to um, Steve Holland, one of the swimmers. All the teams are on the same... All the, teams are on the same um, flight, the hockey team. So we just went straight into Montreal without any pre-season, so to speak. And these days, you know, they have much better preparation. So 1980, I was really hoping to... I was devastated when I got the news that they'd um, the funding had been cut by the federal government because of the uh, the problems with Russia and Afghanistan invasion. And uh, I got to say, it was uh, I was I still talk about it, but you can't do anything about it. I mean, I'd, uh, I luckily went to Commonwealth Games, World Cup, um, you know, World Championship stuff. So I had nine years, but uh, missing out on the competing at the second Olympics was uh, it was hard at the time when I when I'd put so much put four years into preparing virtually. Mm. Do you think you reached your potential back then as a young fella? No, I don't. I mean, I, I, it's it's one of those things where I was doing medical studies and those days the medical schools didn't take kindly to people deferring or taking time off. And in fact, you know, that we're talking 1970s, of course, with the 76 games and then mm-hmm. 78, 79 leading up. I graduated and was trying to work as an intern, as they called at the hospital. It was I was working 84 hours a week, Aaron, and um, they wouldn't give you time off. So I was training... You know, whenever I could, six o'clock in the morning, ten o'clock at night. So I don't think my athletics was done justice, and probably my medical study. So I didn't do justice to. I managed to get through the medical course and and move on. But I, I felt they both suffered. Whereas these days, I think you know, someone is at the Australian team or the Institute of Sport or whatever, they get scholarships, and they can really just give their best to their sport. They can throw two or three years at it, and it doesn't impede their professional career. And they definitely can focus uh, focus on it if I'd just devoted myself to athletics. And I don't know. I mean, I, I probably got the best out of myself at the time. As I said, you're trying to study and work as a doctor. And so I was trying to get that. And as I said, right, I, I just felt if, if I was if I had the time over again, I would have taken two years out, three years out, and just absolutely found out what sort of athlete I could have been. I may have done no better, but at least it wouldn't be on the back of my mind. And, you know, and, and certainly 
it, it it's not as if it's call from earn on that time when I was, you know, doing my medical studies and think, oh, you know, would I have been a better doctor if I'd not run and concentrated on, on medicine? But at the end of the day, my medical career has not been impeded in any way by the fact that I, you know, did athletics and, and was on the international circuit. I, I was able to sort of carve a pathway going into the sports medicine world and it wouldn't have made any difference whether I'd, you know, I'd spent more time studying or spent more time in the hospitals i always had a career path in my own head that i wanted to work in the high performance sport area and then ultimately just in the high performance in life area as i call it mm. so i don't think uh, my medical studies would have been in any way uh, affected if i'd taken a couple of years off and concentrated on athletics but it's all the past and you know you can't look in the rearview mirror we just go forward and um, i've been lucky to have had both of those things in my life Amazing, mate. You would have uh, obviously like had significant burnout back then. And when you talk about mental health, uh, I suppose these days it would have been recognised uh, back in back in the seventies. No, it wasn't. I mean, certainly any discussion of mental health was seen as a weakness uh, amongst anybody, female or male, but particularly blokes. I mean, the macho image of the sporting person in Australia—you just sucked it up, and you never. You never discussed, you know, that you were anxious or had any uh, signs of, of anxiety, depression or things like that. And, uh, I mean, I, I, the, the burnout thing that, that that I've sort of personally sort of feel I've had episodes of really didn't come until much later on. I, I think when I was probably overworking in, in the, the time in the, in the medical area, I was sort of trying to have a normal life. I was trying to still keep fit and I was working big hours and I was... President, National President of Sports Medicine Australia, which was a, a voluntary um, position, but it was uh, taking lots of meetings and hours. And I, and I really just felt the whole... I spent three years doing that national job and, and on top of my medical work, on top of family and, and commitments. And I, I really just, you know, you just sort of push on because it's the thing to do. Um, mm. But I look back at the time and think, you know, I really... When I finished my job on the committee... There, you normally stay on an extra year as the past president, Aaron. You know, you're given an extra year on the national committee, and I, I declined to stay on. I just had nothing left in the tank, mm. and and I look back now and I say, well, I know that was me. You know, just literally, I lost the motivation to want to contribute, and and to me, that's and I and I know that's one of the signs of, of burnout is when you lose interest in things you've had an interest in before, and, and energy and fatigue came along. So, so it wasn't so much the at the end of my athletic career because again just to go back to that i mean you know athletes often struggle to know what they're going to do after their career we've seen it with olympic athletes we've seen it with um, you know top end nrl players afl players i mean any sport you want to name where someone has been at the top of the tree and i wasn't at the top of the tree but obviously i was at the best i could be for myself at the international level and but they finish their career and i call it the pedestal syndrome aaron where you've been on a pedestal and people know you and you're australian champion of this or you're a brownlow medalist or you're an olympic medalist and suddenly your competitive um, career is gone. You're no longer competing. You don't get that feedback. You don't get that. And, and so it's very easy if you to, to really go into the depths of, of, of a mental health crisis. Now, I luckily didn't do that because I always knew I had my medical career. And, and it's a really interesting thing with young athletes. I say to them, you know, you've got to look at what you've got. You've got to prepare to retire before you retire. And people have a very short-term goal as athletes. So... Mm. So I didn't really run into the trouble that some athletes do when they immediately retire because I was, I'd was i been waiting to throw myself into my sports medicine career. 
and had a scholarship ready to go where I was going overseas for a year to do extra postgraduate studies because there was nothing available in Australia for me to do. So, so I didn't hit that, um, that flat spot that athletes often do when they finish their sporting career. But I subsequently got it in my professional work, uh, probably on two occasions, simply because you just pushed on and did more than you needed to. And I really didn't know how to talk to someone about it or how to um, you know, get help with it. I think it's very common still in the medical profession, uh, having sort of worked um, uh, with the health service myself previously and uh, a lot of the expectations that are on people in various disciplines, you know, you can just get burnt out really, really quickly. It's extraordinary. No, and I see it in my colleagues who are surgeons, you know, and doctors are supposed to be caring people. Mm. (laughs) I guess that the concept of compassion, which is something that I think is a really important trait in life and... Mm. You know, doctors and nurses and people in the health professions ought to have compassion as a as a as a characteristic trait because you are you know caring for people and looking after other people and you put them ahead of you sometimes with the hours you work. But you're right in the medical profession, um, people do experience burnout, particularly if they're in high pressure areas like neurosurgery and other areas working in the oncology or cancer world so i mean i really admire those people i mean sports medicine is a very clean type of medicine i call it aaron right because mm. i look after ankles and knees and hips and shoulders and you know no one really dies from that sort of stuff but mm. but people that are dealing with illness and, and things along the way um you know that they they have incredible pressure and, you, and it just goes home with you you can't switch off sometimes if you've had a, a bad a case go wrong or a patient that you're really attached to and i admire the people that do that work and as i said there's other professions of course that that have it but but that burnout and that sort of i don't know career fatigue for want of a better word aaron mm-hmm. is, is definitely very common in the health professions for sure you would have noticed um obviously like Really, hospitals in the medical profession back then was all around fixing wounds, but now it's sort of been being able to sort of deal with non-communicable disease over the last 30 or 40 years. Yeah, look, I mean, the world of medicine is so different from when I graduated in the the late 1970s with all the technology and advances. And I mean, most of the stuff I learned in medical school is not relevant anymore. And fortunately, I work in a a relatively narrow field. I mean, I work in the, the men's health, community health and and, and uh, area more now than I do purely in the orthopedic knees and shoulders area. So there's a blend of both that I do. But but as you say, in the hospitals now, we've, got, we've had, you know, in the last couple of years have been an absolute example of that where there's been an incredible emphasis on on community and public health through uh, through what we've dealt with with the pandemic for the, the, the coronavirus. And, mm. um, but even just advances in all the other treatments that happen with immunotherapy for cancer treatments. The, the world of medicine is, is so dynamic at the moment. It's an exciting place to be, but hospitals uh, are places where people go when they're not well. And it's uh, the pressure on, on staff, the pressure on, you know, the, the pandemic itself as a global pandemic. I mean, who, who would have thought it's not just a a local illness in one one state, one country, one nation. It's a global thing. The whole world's been impacted by this. It's been a terrible strain on resources and personnel. But, you know, I work private now. I'm in a private hospital, so I don't work in the public hospital dealing with all those, you know, terrible illness things. But my private hospital network's also been impacted because we have had many people that have um, had to cancel work or cancel their surgeries, etc., because of the COVID pandemic. Mm, amazing. Yeah, certainly um, 
Uh, my observation, uh, you know, when I was a young fella, um, you'd go to outpatients and they were, they were pretty quick, you know. Uh, but these days, uh, they're obviously dealing with all sorts of problems which weren't really around. And I guess, you know, Pete, our food system has changed a lot from when we were young fellas. Like, you know, we'd have fish and chips once a week, but now fast food's so dominant and, um, you know, a lot of the uh, the push towards uh, consumerism has, has probably strengthened a hell of a lot. Yeah, well, interesting. I mean, nutrition is such a big part of, of healthy living. I mean, obviously, um, genetics has a big part to play, and, and I'm a, a big advocate for the role of exercise as the best medicine you'll ever have. It's the best pharmacy because when you exercise, there are chemicals produced that are better than most of the drugs that you're going to get to treat your blood pressure or your blood sugar level or your your high cholesterol level. But but nutrition is fuel. I mean, you think about it, you wouldn't put you know lawnmower fuel in a Ferrari race car, Aaron. So. Mm. The whole concept that's not, you know, a lot of things I learned as an elite athlete and dealing with athletes was all about how to get the best out of yourself and why wouldn't you apply those same principles to everyday life? And yeah. the, the, the whole fast world that we've come across where processed food, heavily processed food, we're talking about sugars and preservatives and we're talking about salts and colourings, I mean, that's not nutrition. Mm. Um, you know, my, my grandmother used to say if she didn't grow it or shoot it, it's processed, Aaron. That, <laughs> yeah. that was her... <laughs> When, when I grew up in the country. And, and so, and we were lucky in Australia, we've got access to this produce. You know, we're a primary producer, for goodness sake. You know, so, and, but it's the, the convenience of takeaway foods or, or pre-prepared foods, and, and you can pick some good ones, but, but you're right. I mean, a lot of illnesses are associated with poor nutrition habits. And, um, you know, I, I'm in the process of doing a lot more lifestyle work. And I talk about, you know, so many tips on things that you should be doing. But exercise and nutrition are right at the top of my tree of tips mm. because if you get those two right and you're fueling the body so it can build its immunity, it can build its defences. You don't put the sugars and starches and the things in there that get stored as fatty. You, you use products. So, and you don't need supplements because food has got nutrients in it. So the whole concept, I mean, there are illnesses that you talk about in the you know casualty department that happen, and they can be genetic and it can be bad luck, but certainly food is medicine as well, mm. as well as exercise is medicine. So they're two things that we need to be promoting right from a very young age with the kids, Aaron. Yeah, I, I agree. Mate, it's interesting. We'll, we'll sort of tail off things a bit, but... Your observation of sport over the you know the the journey and being a boundary rider and all that, you would have seen the advertising um, sort of change where, you know, where we're, we're promoting a healthy living through sport, but we're also flogging junk food at the same time and yeah 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 yeah. Look, it's interesting. I mean, I had twenty one years working in the media broadcasting, as you say, particularly in AFL. Um, where I was lucky enough to, you know, travel around Australia at games and be right, you know, got to know the players, the coaches. It's a, it's a great privileged lifestyle I had. But, but I had a, a rule when I was working for the various networks and media networks. I, I wouldn't endorse or be sponsored by anything that was unhealthy because there is a lot of, you know, and there was alcohol and at one stage there was even smoking, you know, advertising in sport, as you know, which is fortunately gone. But, yeah. but even some of the sponsors, you know, they, they get to kids. And they get to the, you know, sport is a great medium for getting publicity in this country, particularly. We've only got to look at last weekend to, to see that. But but I had a, I had a principle that I wouldn't um, endorse or take sponsorship from any uh, product that, that I think had gave the wrong health message, particularly to the kids. Because, as I said, sport is the opportunity for many companies. And we've seen, I'm not going to mention brand names, Aaron, but you know, there are certain fast food takeaway food companies and, and other companies and, and alcohol of course was involved and it's it's nor it's now i think slowly turning 
but they the, the advertising people come up with clever ways to manipulate the system i believe still mm, yeah it's interesting isn't it with um with regards to footy um what were some of the best experiences that you had uh like in your time in the media and being around uh sporting clubs wow well that's yeah gee i mean <laughs> The best experiences probably was, you know, and again, this is being self-indulgent, but, the, you know, the 07-09 and 2011 Grand Finals for Geelong, working as the boundary rider when your own team is winning its first flag in 44 years, mm. having grown up as a supporter, and when you're working at the games, you try not to let your colours show because you've got to be independent. But the highlights for me were, were you know, working, I think I went, you know, 2021 Grand Finals in a row with one of the best seats in the house being down mm. at the ground level, you know, where the players are. So you don't get the bird's eye view, Aaron, but, you know, that, that privilege of being at the Grand Finals, but particularly the Geelong ones, would stand out. And the other thing and I often talk about it is the Anzac Day um, games, Aaron, stand out to me is they're so respectful. Mm. Um, they're so moving. I mean, the way the AFL and Kevin Sheedy's got a lot to do with that going back as well as some of the, even some of the Indigenous games that, that, that have come on board. But, I mean, you know, whilst Grand Final is the pinnacle game to go to and obviously the, the stakes are high, to me, one of the best games I used to enjoy, um, and it was obviously the Anzac Day game in Melbourne MCG in April, it was just so moving, so respectful, you know, with the with the cover party, with the helicopter coming in, the balls arriving. I mean, it was just, I think we've done such a great job mm. in acknowledging what Anzac means. Mm. Um, so there's, there's my sort of second highlight after the Geelong Grand Final wins. But, but the other thing was just the opportunity to, to be on the inside of footy. I'm having never been a, a star, you know, player at AFL level, but I got to be on the, what I call the inner sanctum so often with footy because when you've got 18 sides and you're broadcasting sometimes in Perth and you're in Brisbane and you're in Adelaide and Sydney as well as the the, the um, Victorian based games you know you get to go into the rooms you get to see the warm-up you get to interview players so whilst I was the medical reporter in my job um, with the networks I worked on you know with staff not being um, abundant you, you still get to interview the best player after the game or you get to interview a coach beforehand so I just loved being part of the action I mean it's a highlight every time I went to, to to a game in one sense because I knew it was a privilege to be in the position I was in Aaron mm, Amazing tell me who would be the the best three people uh, players or coaches that you've probably encountered in that time oh, Gee I'm going to offend somebody I know if I, <laughs> of if I course, yeah, yeah. look you know people players are so polite um, and I really loved meeting players i mean and again look so self-indulgent gary over junior is a gem i mean you know I, I i was at geelong as the club doctor when his dad played mm. and i subsequently did media broadcasting and gary ablett was just so polite such a a leader so easy to deal with lance franklin buddy franklin i just found a, a wonderful guy to talk to always generous with his time on interviews and always would speak to me before or, or after the games. I mean, I, you know, I could go on a little bit because um, I, I just had a chance to... All all the stars, I got to meet with them and that. Um, Coach-wise, oh, look, there were so many good... I mean, Paul Ruse was a, was a wonderful guy to interview and was always very polite to talk to on the way through. Um, you know, when he, when he was, uh, you know, coaching in, in, the, in these... His heyday, I'm going to call it. Sorry to offend Paul if you're listening, um, but but you know, so you know, there was. It's a very respectful thing, footy. You know, and it's um, it's one of those 
fields where you you have some great people in there and whilst the publicity and the focus is on them, but they do a lot of good work behind the scenes, players mm. and, and coaches on that on that way through. But, to, you know, I've um, and a lot of the current coaches were players when I was doing my job, but um, it's, um, it's good to see them continue in the sport. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the game has changed a lot. You know, it was more kick to kick when uh, we were around sort of in the 70s and oh. 80s. Yeah, but now it's a... Yeah, time. well, look, Aaron, I mean, I, again, I've worked with international sports around the world, Olympics and and um, the Australian triathlon team, the Australian lacrosse team, the Australian cricket team, but our, our, our game of Aussie rules is one of the most athletic sports in the world. We've all watched soccer, we've all watched NFL in America, but, I mean, it, it is the kick-to-kick side, it's so athletic, you're changing directions, it's a 360-degree sport. You've got to have your wits about you. You've got to work off both sides of the body. You've got to jump, tackle, fall over. I mean, it is an incredibly athletic sport, and um, and I really have a lot of respect for the the good players and all the players. And and, and you've got to be brave. I mean, it is yeah. you know when you, when you work at the ground level, you you actually hear the crunches of them thumping. I remember taking international guests when they visited, and I take them to the MCG. They get the chance to sit with me up close, usually medical people. And they had no appreciation. The fact that our players don't wear protective gear, you know, and as you say, it, it, they, they just they, oh, my God, I didn't realise how, how good these guys are. So uh, we've got a great sport, but hence, hence we've got to be looking at ways to protect injuries, whether it's the head injuries or whether it's the knees. We've got lots of challenges still in the medical side of footy, Aaron. Mm, agree. It's funny, um, you know, you don't see the helmet as much as what uh, was once around, but uh, certainly the, uh, the risk of, uh, you know, uh, a brain injury um, is quite significant in football, um, oh, I think, and it's probably uh, astounding that we haven't actually experienced, uh, you know, as many as what we what we actually have. Yeah, absolutely. It's the number one challenge for world sport is head injury and concussion and, and the subsequent mental health consequences out of that. And mm. Next month, I'm at last getting to the world concussion conference which has been postponed in 21 and postponed in 2020 and it's on in amsterdam next month that aaron and there's it's a consensus statement of um, all the world experts on concussion so i'm going to be a, a very uh, interested set of ears in the audience listening to see because we've got a huge challenge with kids with sports where the concussion you know protocols we know they've changed you don't go back on the ground and run around not know where you are but it's, we've still got players who are um, claiming and and alleging that they have long-term problems of memory and depression and sometimes it's drug um, drug problems um, anxiety associated with multiple head injuries it, it's a terrible dilemma because we I mean you can't stop collisions in a collision sport I know that's a silly statement in one way Aaron but you know often the concussions are teammates running into each other it's not the, the, the hits behind the play that you know that when I played footy you have to watch over your shoulder you get hit from behind but now yeah. concussion can happen you know to two teammates doing it so it's not as if we can say oh we can stop concussion yes. we can't it's going to happen and so we, we've got a real problem in these sports of knowing how long the player needs to miss for why some people have long symptoms and some get better quickly and this conference um, in Amsterdam next month there'll be more questions than answers I don't think this panel is going to have the answers but I'll be curious to see what knowledge I come back with Aaron yeah absolutely I guess you, you probably are in a bit of a, a niche there where you're a bit isolated with uh, your own profession and to be able to go and experience other professionals like yourself uh, from other other parts of the world that are involved with various sports would be very um, capacity building for yourself I would have thought too 
Yeah, look, I mean, you know, people say to doctors, oh, you're on junkets, you're always going on these trips. We haven't had any for years, as you might yeah. imagine, with COVID. But equally, yeah. it's the network that I develop. I mean, I'm fortunate to still do a little bit of media. You know, I call it education work because when I do an interview, you know, on radio, even on the weekend, just gone, and I'm talking about a player who's got a broken leg, I'm explaining, you know, what how long they can take or what, you know. But to go across, basically, we're going to have NFL people there that will have national the international ice hockey people there, the jockeys, the jockeys get concussed when they fall off the horses. We'll have AFL people there, NRL people. It really is the world's focus on on concussion and head injury. It's not just a footy thing. It it occurs outside the football codes, but obviously soccer gets them and rugby league, rugby union. So to mix with the people that are at the forefront, and I'm not saying they have the answers, Aaron, but it's a way of me... You know, when I go to these conferences, you come back and you say, yep, I'm on top of this topic and I know it. Or you say, gee, I learned a lot. You never know until you go. Mm. Um, but it's important for me, you know, in medicine's evolving. We talked about it earlier, all the changes with medicine. And, and, and you can't sit back on your hands and say, I know it all. It's, it's an incredibly dynamic field to be in medicine and it's changing so quickly. You have to keep up with what's going on. And this mental health concussion one is clearly at the top of the tree. I mean, it'd be nice to say we're going to stop ankle sprains and we're going to stop hamstrings, but boy, you only get one brain. You know, we can do knee reconstructions at the hospital today on someone who blows their knee up, Aaron, but you can't do a brain replacement, right? So we've really got to get on top of this. And, you know, it's really having an impact on parents choosing sports for their kids because, you know, young kids who get multiple concussions, we think it can have an impact later in life. And uh, I wish I had the answers. And and helmets aren't the answer, just to go back to your little comment about them, because helmets can stop you having a broken skull. It can stop you getting a lacerated skull so that you don't come up under the blood rule. Depending on the shape of the helmet, it might protect your cheekbone from a broken cheekbone, but they're not necessarily concussion. Concussion is this jolting that the brain gets inside this hard shell Mm. called the skull. And so when you have a helmet on, you've actually got a bigger head. You don't have a smaller head. The target becomes bigger. Mm. And so one of the engineering um, arguments against helmets is that it doesn't stop your head from shaking if you get hit in the head. I mean, I believe helmets will stop, as I said, a fractured jaw or a fractured eye socket, um, you know, a fractured skull, and that's great because there's still head injuries. But in terms of a helmet to stop concussion, nobody's come up with the right one yet. Yes, and it's obviously expanded a fair bit with women getting into football too. What a massive uh, problem that's become. So... Again, if we just go back, so any of the injuries that a man can get, a woman can get. You know, they can break a finger, they can sprain an ankle, they can tear a hamstring, they can get concussion. We know that because there are men and women play the same sports around the world when they play soccer or they play rugby or they play hockey. But the AFL has produced an extra dilemma with this ACL ligament injury because if just quickly, if you look at men and women who play the same sports like basketball, hockey, soccer, we know that women had more knee injuries than men five to six times the amount of ACL injuries in those sports. Suddenly the AFL comes along and it's nine to ten times higher in the AFLW players. Mm. So even AFL has another higher risk than those other sports like, like soccer and basketball where ACLs have been around forever. So, And we're still trying to work out what it is. Part of it is, you know, um, the, the non-changeable things, so the hormone changes, the genetics, the shape of the women's knees is different. But they also haven't grown up at three and four or five with a footy in their hand. They haven't. Mm. They don't understand. I talked before about it being a three sixty degree sport and being aware and being out, knowing how to tackle and land. And the kids that have a footy in their, the boy kids, the, the male kids that have a footy in their hand at three or four, they sort of get that and they sort of do Oz kick. Now the good thing is 
the generation of girls coming through, Aaron, are going to get that. Mm. But the current crop that have come from other sports, it's just tragic because an ACL injury can have an impact on the rest of your life. And so we've got this um, situation where we're going to have to do more pre-season training, more strength training, but there's always going to be a difference between boys and girls. I'm, I've, I've written an article about it. Unfortunately, mm. the birds and the bees are never going to change, so we won't get it completely different, but we can improve the preparation of the girls to play footy. Mm, yeah, well said, and well recognised from picking it up now, I guess, you know, it probably wasn't thought about earlier on in the piece, but uh, yeah, things have Well, evolved. again, there was a bit of a predictability when AFL, AFW was coming along, and because, you know, being in sports medicine for as many decades as I have and being to these other conferences, there'd always been presentations about comparing men and women's soccer knee injuries, men and women's basketball knee injuries, and the women had more ACL. So we said to the AFL, look, there's going to be a problem here. And the girls were coming from sports like netball and hockey. They weren't used to being tackled or getting hit from behind. And, and so we knew there was going to, we could sort of predict it, but we didn't know it was going to be nine to ten times the risk. We said, you know, four to five times the risk compared to men. Mm. And so every season of AFLW, and the season's only been six or eight weeks long, as most listeners will understand, we've been getting 10 or 12 girls having an ACL injury in a six-week period. Now, imagine if we had 12 ACLs in, in the AFL men's season in that period of time. There'd be a, you know, there'd be a royal commission. Mm. Um, so it, it was a bit predictable, but it's turned out to be worse than we thought. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Uh, I'm still getting my head around women's footy. There were some great women's uh, or girls playing when I was at school, but they weren't allowed to play, but... But now no. it's, uh, it's certainly opened up a hell of a lot more, which I think is great because it's actually, you know, keeping people active, uh, I think, in many ways. So, now just... Yeah, I mean, and look, we've seen, we've seen leagues everywhere at all. So I look after an, an over-35 women's team at my clinic there um, and uh, they're, they're coming in with their dislocated shoulders and broken collarbones and they love it. They, they love the footy even at, at, at their over-35. So, and yet you've got these under-10 girls that are playing now and they'll be the next crop of good AFLW players. Mm, and that combat is great. You know, I think yeah, a lot of netballers that I know have uh, done a bit of work with uh, in, in Country Vic. They're all playing footy now and they're actually like really enjoying it. You know, they're deadlifting and they're doing all these weights and starting yeah. to, uh, to really get involved, which I, I think is, you know, tremendous. Yeah, well, strength training is a big part of health. So whether you're 16 years old or 86 years old, you should do strength training because strength training isn't just about muscles. It produces hormones that assist with balance and stability and helps mm. with diabetes and helps with blood pressure. So, But strength training for injury prevention around joints, which is what the girls are doing more of now that they've understood that, um, mm. that's that's a big part. But, you know, I talked before about exercise and nutrition for, for health benefits there and strength training often gets overlooked because people think, oh, I don't want to be a bodybuilder, I don't want to go to the gym. But strength training goes across a whole lot of metabolic processes like diabetes and cancers and blood pressure and cholesterol. So, so if you mix your aerobic training, your walking or your cycling um, or swimming or whatever aerobic stuff you do with some simple two or three days a week of strength training, you're on the pathway to a long and happy life, hopefully. Now, tell us a bit about it, Pete. I know you're, uh, you're pretty uh, determined to live, uh, not just live, but thrive past 100 yourself. I know that you're uh, you're pretty keen to help others um, on that. I believe you're actually going to write a book about it. Is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty deep into a book, uh, Aaron. It's um it's how to live to a hundred and beyond, but it's a healthy hundred and beyond. And I got the idea a few years ago, and you know, I guess we've always had this concept that if you turn a hundred, you get a telegram from the Queen, and it was sort of like you know triple figures was such a <laughs> a high achievement of thing, and and some people did, and some didn't. It was obviously an exception to do it. 
Um, but I, then the more I got involved in this health care and health promotion, well, I looked at the reasons people were dying, and, and we know that there's heart disease and there's stroke and there's diabetes and there's cancers. You know what? They're all preventable, mm, Aaron. Yes. There, there are predictors. You know, you can have health checkups. And so I decided with all my knowledge about, you know, high performance in sport, I'm writing this book on how to be a high performer in life. And, and you know, I make the silly statement again in the book, if you don't die, you're going to live. And so premature death is what I'm talking about preventing and healthy living. So I want people on a boat cruise in the, in the Bahamas or doing their trip through the Kimberleys when they're 90. I don't want them sitting in a nursing home on an oxygen cylinder. So this is about, at an early stage of life, having the health checkups, finding out. We talked before how medical care is improving dramatically. So the survival rates of cancer, the survival rates of heart disease, the survival and management of diabetes is getting so much better that they shouldn't be killing people. Yes. What kills people is poor lifestyle habits like smoking and drugs and being overweight and not exercising. So so my book on, on how to live to a healthy hundred and beyond, because I, initially I was going to be a healthy hundred and then I thought, why am I stopping at a hundred? Because you look around the world and there are parts of, of uh, Sardinia in Italy and then Japan, the women, where the average age is 103, 104. Mm. And then there's some people live to 110. You say, what's, what is it about them? And you know, one of the great things, social connectivity. I don't want to give too much of my book away, Aaron, but <laughs> one of the great things about those parts of the world is the social interaction and social connectivity. They don't spend their days in nursing homes. They get up, they pick the food out of their garden, they go and play bocce, they go for a walk. They have an afternoon nap. They talk to each other. So it's not just about genetics. It's about nutrition. It's about exercise. So, so my book about living to a healthy 100 and beyond, is, uh, it's, in, it's in process. It's not ready because the more I write, the more I write. I'm just finding so much to write about, whether it's the value of sleep or whether it's the value of the right snacks or how to have holidays or have mentors or how to have a cup of tea, you know, to get the stress down out of your body because my mum always had a solution that a cup of tea solved everything, Aaron. So, yes, yeah, of <laughs> so that's my book. So it's half medical and it's half lifestyle and it's um, a little bit of my own sort of background about where I've come from in this health and fitness uh, industry. You've, you've got the experience and you've seen lots of people firsthand, I guess, but, um, you know, one thing that sort of come to me there, Pete, was... Uh, you know, the, 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 the simple stuff uh, is really what it's, what it's all about. Now, we're, we might be living uh, older because we're sort of kept on medication or, or whatever that's actually prolonging our life, but we're not actually thriving. And, uh, you know, I'd like no. to see people, like, thrive where they're not actually relying on, on things to, uh, to sustain them. Yeah, well, one of my chapters is how to keep away from your doctor. Uh, Aaron, <laughs> yeah. and, and, and whilst my medical colleagues might sort of say, hey, what are you talking about? My, my point is, if you're not unwell, you don't need a doctor. So if you take responsibility, I said your body is the best pharmacy. It produces chemicals that are equivalent to blood pressure tablets, that are equivalent to anti-cholesterol tablets, that are, that are equivalent to keeping your your insulin um, level requirements down if you are diabetic. So so the concept of, of you know, having of thriving and that's why i talk about a healthy hundred and being on a, on a boat cruise or being on a trip to europe or skiing when you're 95 in the swiss alps so it doesn't matter it's the point is you want to enjoy life i mean it will catch up i mean what's the limit is it 120 is it 150 i mean if we can work out why the body unravels so the dna and the, and the getting scientific here the telomeres and this thing called the epigene which determines your the way that you age, if we can work out why they fail, and part of it is is lifestyle and nutrition, then if we stop it and slow it down, you know, we, we're going to add, I talk about health span, not lifespan, Aaron, so lifespan is how long you live, but health span 
is how long you live in a healthy situation. So we're trying to expand health span in people. My book, hopefully, if people follow it. But the earlier you start, the better. I mean, it's never too late to start, but you'd rather be under good nutrition and good health practices in your 20s and 30s than trying to start in your 70s. Agree, and uh, you know, I always say to guys, look, it's not too late. Whether you're seventy or you know seventeen, if you you've hit a wall physically or mentally, by doing things differently to reverse that, you know, and actually being dedicated to that, you can turn things around, you know. And uh, Abs- yeah, yeah, I've seen yeah. so much. Yeah, again, another there. chapter of my book, and it's never too late. Never too late to start. That's it. And. Um, you know, and, and it, it, you mentioned before, I mean, one of the things is social isolation as people get older and that mental stress. And so one of the mm-hmm. things that I talked about with those uh, those parts of the world called blue zones. So blue zones are the parts of the world where people live the longest. And I mentioned a couple of them. So they have the social interactions, social connectivity. Social isolation is, is just absolutely wearing on people. We've seen it during COVID probably, Aaron, to some extent, yes. of course, Terrible. because those people that lived alone and didn't have a partner or to someone to share, particularly in Melbourne when we had the longest lockdown in the world. We had one stage, you know, we had 8pm curfews. You couldn't walk to your front gate. You couldn't, uh, you had a 5k radius to travel when you're allowed to travel. It was very, very mentally stressful. Mm -hmm. Now, people that get older that don't have that support network, they have that issue. So, you know, the sooner you start developing and, you know, having those sort of networks of support, um, then you're less likely to have those stresses. Agreed. The motto here at the Outback Mind Foundation is prehabilitation is better than rehabilitation, you know, so to do more yep. to prevent stuff, you know, for, for, from mental decline, physical yep. decline. I think if you can do things on a daily basis which keep you physically and mentally well, um, you know, you will, you'll continue to thrive through this lifetime. Would you agree? Absolutely. I mean, again, the old phrase, and not, not to take away from your uh, excellent, you know, business phrase, but prevention <laughs> is better than cure. Yeah. And, and, and cures are improving. We talked about it earlier, but why do you want to be treating an illness that you could prevent? I yes. mean, when we talk about obesity, we talk about blood pressure, we talk about bowel disease through poor nutrition and not looking after your gut microbiome through healthy bacteria in your gut. So if you, if you say, and, you know, you, anyone can look up the, the Bureau of Statistics and see the 20 common causes of death in Australia. I've got them in my book. And you say, well, mm. isn't there a test for these? Can't I, can't I start working on these? And the answer is you can. Even Alzheimer's and dementia, the number two cause of, 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 of death and, um, and decline in Australia, now has a potential biomarker in the blood to pick it up earlier, plus a test where they look through the eye and can see in the blood vessels at the back of the brain. So even Alzheimer's and dementia has a predictive test to try and prevent it. And and thing like, things like cognitive ability and mental clarity as you get older is improved with exercise and good nutrition. Yes. And so this prevention that you just mentioned is prehabilitation better than rehabilitation. That's the theme of the knee injuries, go back to that. And wouldn't you do your prehabilitation, get in the gym, build up your strength, work out how to tackle and land properly, and you won't have to rehabilitate a, a wrecked knee. Yes. And it's the same with cancer or it's the same with... the heart disease or stroke or bowel cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, the health checks are available. Get yourself a good health practitioner and get the checks done early. Yeah, agree, mate. And we also need to call the sports uh, sport bodies out for promoting the wrong stuff too, you know. I, I know they've got to make money, but I don't like seeing them flog things that can be unhealthy. And if people are uneducated, then they can be sort of uh, led down the garden path of poor choices. Oh, yeah, look, the commercial... Exploitation and the commercial, you know, it's it's difficult in sports, and particularly the I call them the amateur sports if there is such a thing. But you know, you've got to do fundraising, you've got to get sponsorship. But 
again, you know, sport should be healthy. Sport and activity should be a way of both social fun plus physical benefit. So why would we be promoting unhealthy practices, particularly nutritionally, um, from doing that? So it's a real sort of... Uh, bind here that the sport organizations have to show integrity and, and to stick with their guns and not take the funding it's a bit like the betting agencies with a lot of the sports Aaron. i don't know if you're a gambler or a, or a no. betting person but no. but you look you talk about the what i used to see when i was at the mcg or other games and all the ads and you see it even on the the coaches collars or their their uniforms you know they're, they're sponsored by betting organizations and now now, you know, we all like to have a bet on the Melbourne Cup once a year, but some people, you've got to be very careful with these advertising. It does influence vulnerable people who are who are looking, you know, to, to be influenced. And, and the advertising agencies are very clever. That's what they get paid the big bucks to do. So, as I said, sports need to stick with their integrity and stick with their, um, their principles and not be going down a path. The same way as we've, you know, eliminated largely smoking and alcohol advertising in sport, Aaron. Mm, that's right. Yeah, certainly, Pete, that, that's... Um it's a conversation for another day, <laughs> that one. And uh, we, sure. might, we might be able to engage the CEO of uh, the, the major sporting bodies in that. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting one. And, uh, yeah, look, I, I just believe, you know, the work you're doing is, is really important. And, you know, you, you've lived um, your ethos from when you were a six-year-old boy in that Geelong room, you know. You've actually, like, loved what you've done and loved what you're doing. And you've built a life around uh, sport and being able to help sports people. So, you know, I'm really grateful that you're able to share your time and, uh, and have a chat to us about it here today. Yeah, well, look, I, I try to live what I preach. I mean, you know, my doctor in Geelong when I was an eight, ten-year-old had a pipe. When you went in to see him, he'd smoke a pipe during the <laughs> consultation. He was overweight and he, and he probably had a bottle of scotch sitting in the corner on the shelf behind him during his work day as well. And I think we've come a little bit away from doctors. Uh, you might be credible as a doctor if you're fat, overweight, and smoke, as I've said to my, my medical students when I talk to them. So yes. um, so I think, you know, I'd, it'd be hard for me to be air preaching healthy stuff and writing a book on how to live healthy if I was... Uh, you know, not not walking walking the walk, and you know I can't talk the talk if I don't do the walk. It's a, and that's that's sort of where I'm at. But I've done it my whole life. It's I'm so fortunate to have been in the sport world. So I do sports medicine, Aaron. But sport comes before medicine in that word, and yes. so the medicine came afterwards. Sport came first for me. And now it's not about sport. Now it's about activity. I mean, I'm not trying to train people for the Olympics in Brisbane. You know, with my my exercise tips in my book i'm trying to get people to walk down to be the, to the end of the street to buy the milk and to buy the paper and and not fall over in the shower because they've got strong muscles from from their balance exercises they do so matt my sport training now is about training for life not training to uh, compete yeah tremendous mate so what's uh what's the next uh, chapter in your life peter are you going to continue to do the medical thing are you going to phase out and sort of get more into well it's uh, a blend now I, I still have a clinical practice here in melbourne where i do you know my elite athletes start at about the age of 50 and go to about 90 so they come in with their sore hip and their sore knee and i'm telling them they're going <laughs> to live to 100 and beyond they look at me like i'm silly and you know i see a 70 year old with a an arthritic knee and i tell them they've got another 30 years to go and they they think i'm crazy but so i'm still doing my orthopedic sports medicine work but that's it's really an arthritis practice almost that i have now i still see people with a broken collarbone and things like that from time to time but so my clinical work but i'm really moving more into this health promotion area the podcast with with you public mm-hmm. speaking um the book when it comes out early next year because i was going to have it out for christmas but i find that you know to do it properly and, and to get it right, I won't be out too early 2023. So my book on, on how to live to a healthy 100 and beyond will be 
uh, allow me hopefully to do more public education work like like your show does yeah. you know for me aaron Amazing. because to me that's my next direction as i said the immediate thing is the concussion meeting and i'm off in two weeks three weeks time i'm off to the world championships of the hawaii ironman because i'm one of the medical co- coordinators of the hawaii ironman if uh, your listeners have ever heard of that yes that's a that's a massive event that i'm privileged to go to yeah um and we have a high-performance five-day conference there where we have talks on nutrition and training and exercise from some of the top speakers in America that come to that. Um, the concussion meeting will be really important. Maybe we should have a chat after that because the mental health concussion messages coming out of that October meeting will be uh, hopefully pretty revolutionary. Sure. But in the years ahead, you know, my, my, my goal is to, to work in this health promotion and to educate people about how to live healthy and to start as young as possible. The secret of life is to die young but to leave it as long as possible. That's going to be the mantra. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's well said. I've never, never heard of it. Put so you want to be young way. at 90, in other words, folks, right? Yes, my word. And uh, my, my dad is uh, going to hit 90 in December and he he's lost it physically and mentally, you know, and uh, I, I, I made that decision years ago that I did not want to end that way. And I think we still have this hereditary sort of thing going around uh, in modern society where, you know, if dad had it and grandpa had it, you'll get it. But I just don't believe that. So if you can do things to prevent, then all of a sudden you can divert uh, and turn the corner. Yeah. Yeah, look, it's important to know your family background. And, and genetics, yes, you, you can't change genetics. You can't change your birth date. And you can't change your, your, gen, your gender predisposition despite all the... You know, the, another topic we can't go into now, but obviously mm. there's all this, this this gender, transgender stuff going on in sport and the world. But mm. but genetics, to come back to it, is so important. But if you know that you've got a family history of, of bowel cancer or a family history of prostate disease or a family history of stroke or, or heart attacks, then for goodness sake, you've actually got such incredible information available to you because you know that you might be prone to that. So get on the front foot. Do the prevention stuff we talked about before. Yes. Have your checkups. Find out your blood pressure. Find out your cholesterol. Make sure you're, you're in the ideal body weight. Eat, eat healthy foods that are heart promoting or that are stop inflammation. So you know the genetics are there. Sure, I'm not going to change the fact that my dad died from a heart attack, Aaron. Mm. But boy, you know my my dad died way too young because he didn't understand the principles. Being a you know a country boy, yes. and um and, and you know he still you know everyone still knew that. You know, they didn't understand. It was, those days, you, you went on tablets and you had a, a bypass surgery and then the bypass clogged up later on because you didn't change your lifestyle. Yes. So uh, we yeah. can we can tackle it front on even if you've got a genetic background that um, that know, that you know that you've got problems and you can see it in your grandfather or your father and you say, well, I'm not going to be that person. I'm, I'm going to look after myself for the sake of my kids and my grandkids. Yeah, absolutely, mate. Oh, I agree. And... Uh yeah, look, that's that's a, a big conversation for another day too. I reckon uh, after this uh, conference you're going to, we should have another chat and that would be very informative to a lot of people out there, particularly that play football in country uh, areas like a lot of people that listen to this do. And, um, uh, you know, I right. think uh, yeah. it's going to be so insightful for you to be able to go away and, uh, and, uh, and learn from uh, other experts around the world as well. Yeah, look, I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm going to learn. I'm going to tell them how to do it. These are all the neuroscientists and the and the people that work in the research for brain scanning and 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 testing. So, and as you say, country country sport, not just country footy, but country sport really has to be up with the latest because it's a lot more injuries occur in country footy than concussions this past weekend than there was in the AFL. And so, there, that's the population group we're we're targeting at people where the healthcare 
isn't as readily available. I mean, the, the AFL clubs are lucky. They've got experts sitting, you know, 10 feet away on the sidelines that's helped them when they get concussed. But you go to a country footy game in central Australia, mm. bloke gets knocked out and there may only be a first aid person there with a, you know, a bag of ice and a Band-Aid. That's right. So who knows? We've got to really get the education out there on how to look after them better. Yep, 100%, Pete. Really, really uh, appreciative for you uh, to come on and have a chat to me today. And, uh, yeah, thank you for your uh, for your insights and uh, and wisdom. I'm sure this is going to be uh, listened to by a lot of people. So um, really grateful for your time, mate, and I'm sure we're going to have many more in the future. No, well, thanks, Aaron, and congratulations on the work you've been doing. It's 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 great that you've gone down this direction, and I really hope you're getting the following that uh, your uh, your messages deserve. Yeah, I appreciate it, mate.